It's Sunday, the 25th of August. This is Monocle's House View. Coming up, the G7 summit continues in France, but a world leader is going to be able to agree on anything at all. Why is Russia increasing its submarine fleet at a rate not seen for decades? And has Macedonia's name change actually managed to improve relations with Greece and smooth its path towards EU membership? I'm Paul Osborne. Monocle's House View starts now. Hello, welcome to Monocle's House View. My guest in the studio today is Elizabeth Braw, who leads the Modern Deterrence Project at the Royal United Services Institute here in London. Uh, later in the programme, we'll hear from our Balkans correspondent on how North Macedonia is adapting to its new name. But first, let's pick up on some of the other stories in the last few days, uh, dominated uh, by the G7 summit. Leaders of the world's most powerful economies were hoping for a relatively quiet gathering in Biritz after all the drama of last year. Those hopes are, of course, unlikely to be realised because of the presence of Donald Trump. With global trade, threats to democracy and climate change all on the agenda, the US president may well be on the opposite side on some key issues from all of the other leaders at the summit. Um, Elizabeth, before it even started... U.S. officials were criticizing Emmanuel Macron because he wanted to talk about what they called niche issues, which they said would fracture the G7. And by niche issues, he means things like global threats to democracy and the huge fires that are burning in the Amazon. That's right. And it's baffling that they would call the Amazon fires a niche issue because that's really an immediate global crisis, given that uh, those trees in the Amazon are the the only reason we still have some hope to stave off the worst effects of of climate change. And and if those trees go, we're in very deep trouble. And yet they call them niche issues, which sort of tells you something about um, maybe the the worldview of this administration, which really focuses completely on uh, uh, issues such as trade, really primarily trade. But if if the climate uh, deteriorates, we won't be trading uh, for very much longer. And when they say it fractures the G7, presumably what they mean is it puts the United States or Donald Trump on one side and the other six countries on the other, because uh, on an issue, say, like climate change, there is a broad unanimity between the other members of the G7 on the need to do more. In the specific issue of the fires in the Amazon, there has been a broad unanimity on the criticism of the Brazilian government. But of course, Donald Trump sees in Bolsonaro someone who's a bit like him and is a climate change denier. And so, yes, it does fracture the G7 because the President of the United States takes a completely different worldview to everybody else. Exactly, and, and uh, that's not just the, um, the reality of the G7, it's uh, reality of the rest of the world. Remember the Paris Agreement, a, a major achievement uh, by the united uh, world community of countries, and yet the US chooses to leave the agreement, or has chosen to leave the agreement. So it, it, it does fracture uh, G7, uh, the G7 summit, as, as it has already fractured the, the world community. But of course, uh, there is no world police. There's nobody who can tell uh, Donald Trump or the current US administration that uh, we, are, we live in a global democracy and, and the majority of countries have decided that this is what we should do. It's up to him to do whatever he likes. Uh, you, you mentioned how trade is, is the, the sort of the prism through which the United States would like to see this summit and most, um, and most things at the moment under the current administration. Um, there was already concern about the existing trade war between the US and Canada. And then going into these talks, you had 
this argument where the uh, the French government is talking about imposing a tax, a digital tax on many American technology companies. Uh, Donald Trump responds by saying, well, we'll tax French wine in that case. Uh, then the EU says, but if you're going to impose tariffs on an EU country, then the EU would then have to respond. So now we might be sliding into a US-EU trade war. Yes, and, and what's frightening about that is that we have had this consensus for decades now that, that growth in, in uh, any given country is good for, for other countries as well because we, we grow, the global economy grows together, right? Uh, and so it's, it's good if, if uh, the Chinese economy grows, if the Japanese economy grows, if the European economy grows, the US benefits from it. But uh, with Trump, we have arrived at a sort of a zero-sum game where it's, detri- it's seen as detrimental to the US if if other countries uh, thrive. And uh, in fact, I mean, it's an argument that Trump has been making for decades and, and decades ago, nobody was listening to him. And, and back then he was uh, complaining about Japan taking advantage of the US. Now it's not Japan that's in his uh, line of fire anymore. It's, it's China. And it is true that China is taking advantage of globalization, but that doesn't mean that trade, international global trade in itself is detrimental. But as you said, we're sliding into this trade war with this tit for tat. And then in the middle of all of this, we have the UK, which is trying to uh, to uh, reach or or initiate a trade deal with the US uh, for that that would be able to the, the UK and the US would be able to implement after Brexit. Of course, nothing can be agreed now because the UK is still in the European Union. But uh, so we had the story today that that Boris is trying to sell uh, Trump on uh, British pork pies pies. Uh, I mean, which, which you know, is, is, a, is a fine British export. Um, we'll, we'll explore that a little later when we look through through the newspapers. But just on, on the summit, there, there is this sense, and we saw it last year when, when there's that famous photograph of Trump sitting there with his arms folded, looking like an angry toddler as, as all the other world leaders stand over him. Um, now, last year, he wouldn't sign up to the communique. This year, the French aren't even attempting to draw up a... a single form of words that all seven will be able to agree on and it just adds to this sense that those global bodies the un nato the g7 that we previously had relied on don't seem up to the challenge of dealing with one disruptive world leader no, I mean, they'll, the leaders will meet in France, they'll, they'll have a couple of nice meals together and, and uh, a, a few drinks and then they'll depart and the world will be no better for it. Um, the European leaders will, of course, the the European leaders uh, accepting the UK uh, will, I think, uh, solidify their already good relationship. And, and uh, But that's, that's not a substantial breakthrough. And... Uh, it, it, it does raise the questions you suggest, what are the global institutions that we can rely on when the world becomes less stable? And, uh, of course, the UN is completely um, sidelined. Uh, it has no executive power. And so what is the institution that could play that sort of crisis uh, management role? There is no such institution. Which leads you on the weekend of a G7 summit to say, what on earth is the point of the G7 anymore? That's right. I mean, there is a point in having it. It's as Angela Merkel likes to say, it's better to talk than not to talk. Um, and I think uh, every f- fighting couple would agree that that's <laughs> that's very good advice. But 
so I, I don't think it, it would make sense to, to, to just jettison it and say, well, nothing achieved. Well, we'll why should we even meet? It's it's a good thing that leaders keep meeting, but um, it doesn't have that the power that that we thought we would have. It would have, and even informal. Um, gatherings uh, such as the the World Economic Forum, which is really set up for global decision makers from politics and business to to, uh, uh, further uh, the development and betterment of the world. Even such uh, gatherings are are not uh, managing to to achieve um, very much. Well, of course, the G7 used to be the G8, and the reason it isn't anymore is because Russia no longer attends. Uh, Russia, however, has been busy and is reportedly set to receive a grand total of six new submarines next year. It is the most in a single year since the fall of the Soviet Union. Elizabeth, the US Chief of Naval Operations has said that the Russian submarine threat is higher now than it has been for the last 25 years. So how threatened should we feel by this? The reality is that the... the the sea blindness that we have been suffering from for for decades now, we need to cure it quickly. So the the thing about uh, navies, whether they be our own or those of our enemies, is that we don't really notice them because uh, we see uh, soldiers on land every now and then, but we rarely see a, a sailor or a or a naval vessel because they are out um, on the world's oceans, obviously. And but uh, they play a crucial role, of course, in in conflicts, but also in securing global trade and um, and and really. Um, if we look at why Russia is is acquiring or building new submarines, it has something to do with its ability, um, the, the ability the, Ru- the Russians want to gain to um, disrupt global trade. In a sense, of course, uh, submarines can be used for many things, but one thing they can be used for, which they are already uh, the Russians are already using them for, is scouting out where uh, the undersea internet undersea cables uh, lie and to to essentially. Uh, track them and um, uh, the Western fear or the fear of, of um, Western officials is that the Russians could um, uh, sabotage those undersea cables which power the entirety of the internet if they if the Russians wanted to. So that's where classic warfare meets um, everyday life. Um, Submarines can be used for, for a lot of things, but uh, and, and most of us wouldn't pay any attention to that. But we will pay attention to the fact that uh, the Internet goes down. Is there a sense uh, in which I, I know that the, the chief of the UK defence staff said about a week ago that the big focus now will be on hiring people with the capacities for cyber warfare, for technology, and they won't even need to be full time and they certainly won't need to be deployed around the world. They'll be working out of the UK. Is there a sense in which militaries around the world are now so obsessed with that, with responding to cyber, responding to the growth of unmanned and autonomous equipment, that they don't think they need warships and submarines. Because at the same time, we also know that the the British naval fleet has never been smaller than it is now. That's right. And and it is a dilemma. So what what do armed forces do with the budgets uh, given to them? How do you allocate money? These are decisions that, that... um, armed forces officials have to make every single day and that have uh, enormous consequences and 
no country has the resources to to spend um, the full amount that that we and, and armed forces officials would want on on every single uh, item. So they have to uh, prioritize and. Is cyber defense more important than uh, naval operations? Well, I think you'd find people arguing uh, both on, on both sides in favor of, of both um, areas of investment. But if we look at um, how the globalized world is set up, 80% of the world's uh, trade travels by ship until it reaches the, the country of its uh, destination. And so if a country wants to weaken another country, it would disrupt its uh, supply chains. And everything travels by ship, not just you know our daily oranges that we get at Tesco and, uh, and construction materials and so forth. Even uh, military equipment travels by ship. So that fact, I think, um, supports the idea that, that we need to have larger navies that can have that constabulary function, uh, accompany uh, civilian um, uh, freight traffic. But as you said, the UK, uh, which has the, the world's proudest fleet and uh, used to rule the waves, not even the UK is able to to uh, escort uh, all of, of um, the shipping that should be export, uh, escorted. Elizabeth, stay with us. Um, in February, the Yugoslav Republic, former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, finally ended a three decades long dispute with neighbouring Greece. The government promised that adding the word north to its name would bring reform and prosperity and would open the door to membership of both NATO and the European Union. But is it really that simple? Well, our correspondent in the region, Guy Delorney, went to see how it's working out. This used to be the soundtrack to every visit to Skopje. For five years, protests dominated the centre of the city. At first, they were young people campaigning against the increasingly authoritarian government of Nikola Gruevsky. More recently, nationalists who saw the impending name change as a sellout made their voices heard. But six months on from the country becoming North Macedonia, everything's changed. The dominant sound on the main square is the fountain surrounding the enormous statue of the Greek hero Alexander the Great, and the protests seem to have melted away in the shimmering heat of Skopje's summer. Now I can see that people are not even talking about the name change. Ivana Tufedjic was one of the anti-Gruevsky protesters. Now she's the country's youngest MP. You have to see hope, and I think that we saw hope and leadership, to see leaders that are prepared to sacrifice their political uh, futures and careers because they want to make a better region. Political elites now have to understand that it is time to stop that play game of nationalism. We have tried that path for 27 years, both of the countries and it was not so good. North Macedonia's industrial sector has felt the benefits. Foreign direct investment has surged. Last year's figure was double the average of the previous five years. 
The auto components industry is the main destination for most of the incoming cash. Pietro Andreetti from capacitor maker Kemet says the end of political turbulence makes his company feel a lot more secure. And it also makes North Macedonia more attractive for investors in general. You can find that people with uh, you know, uh, university degrees easily, they can speak fluently in multiple languages, so it's very easy to deal with them. So that's on the, on the positive side. The other thing is, you know, now many companies are investing, so it's uh, becoming more and more difficult to, to uh, retain people. Over time, it's becoming just like any other <laughs> Eastern European uh, country, you know, you, you lack people. I don't want to say that's the issue we are facing now, but I see an increasing, increasing difficulties in, in finding and retaining people, right? As, we, as there are more investors, foreign investors, and we fight for the same kind of people. This is where you'll find a lot of North Macedonia's brightest young people. Public Room is a cafe, co-working space and cultural centre in Skopje and it's a place for small groups to collaborate on tech projects or work alone on coding assignments. These are young people who don't see their future as low-waged factory workers. Blaja Maleski from the Pressure Group Reactor says it's vital for the government to do more to keep them in the country. There's a lot more hope that we can internally change and create a better society that is through policy and internal revision of what went wrong through this 28 years and learn from the mistakes and actually create a better society for, for people. And that starts with political will. I think the political will is there, but it needs also to transfer this political will into concrete action. And I think uh, we have to be a little bit patient, but we also have to be very vocal in asking for a lot more changes internally, not only the rebranding part. What's your list of the changes that you want to see? Well, first of all, like I said, I think education needs a lot more investment. Secondly, I think we need a lot more justice, not only social, social justice, but also the court system has to change in order for young people to feel a lot more safer in their own country. So I think this is the two top lists that we have to think about. The government says the EU accession process is the way to achieve these reforms, and it sold the name change as a way to open the door to membership negotiations. But EU leaders have been holding back on giving the green light. They've delayed a decision until October. And if they don't give the go-ahead then, that could spell disaster for Prime Minister Zoran Zaev. Eva Ellerite from the Friedrich Ebert Foundation says he'll pay the price if European leaders get cold feet. Zaev's government needs some sort of clear answer this year. They've invested their political capital in this by saying, telling their people, uh, trust in us, trust that this name change will not be for nothing. And of course, NATO membership and good relations with Greece are crucial, but the, in the long run, we need to start EU accession talks here in order to keep the people in the country and in order to keep a perspective for young people in the country. And now I invite the representative of the Hellenic Republic to sign the accession protocol. Thank you so much. At least NATO membership appears to be in the bag. The aim is to complete the accession process in time for the alliance's London summit in December. Defence Minister Radmila Šekarinska hopes the EU will follow this example and reward North Macedonia for solving what seemed an intractable problem. We count on the EU delivering. We were not expecting a handout. We did not wait for a shortcut. Uh, we knew that the 
expectations from us are quite high and we have delivered on all of them. So uh, although there was a delay and it did create uh, some, some disappointment and frustration in the country, uh, I remain uh, hopeful that uh, in October there will be a decision. Uh, our lesson from the dispute with Greece was that when you prolong decisions, when you postpone them, they're never easier. So we have learned our lesson and uh, we hope that this lesson will resonate among EU member states as well. The EU has little to lose by starting accession talks. After all, they'll take years, if not decades, to complete. But after everything that's been achieved in the past year, North Macedonia knows that nothing is impossible. For Monocle in Skopje, I'm Guy Delaunay. You can read Guy Delaunay's uh, full report on North Macedonia in Monocle's summer weekly newspaper, which is on sale now. This is Monocle's house for you for a Sunday. In just a moment, we'll look at some of the stories in today's newspapers. What can you learn in a minute? More than you think if you subscribe to Monocle's daily email newsletter. The Monocle Minute provides fresh analysis of breaking news and direct-to-your-inbox insights on everything from global affairs to entrepreneurship. On Saturdays with the weekend edition, we'll widen your horizons with rye observation, drinking and dining recommendations and must-know openings, plus our editor-in-chief Tyler Brulé's worldly weekly column too. Subscribe now at monocle.com slash minute. Well, this is Monocle's House View, uh, coming to you live from Midori House here in London. I'm Paul Osborne. With me uh, still, Elizabeth Braw. We're going to take a look now at some of the stories in the uh, newspapers uh, over the weekend. Uh, Brexit, Elizabeth, endlessly dominates the British papers. And it's much the same every week. But the Observer today suggesting that the British Parliament could be closed down for more than a month to try and force through a no-deal Brexit. Yes, this is really uh, quite extraordinary. Who has ever heard of, of a liberal democracy, Western country, the proud democratic history, shutting down parliament. It's, uh, and the fact that it's, it's just uh, just any old front page story in the, in the Observer shows how far, how much we have changed during these three years, that this is not uh, the, the biggest news ever. It's just a front page story. Now, it's, it's not clear whether this is actually the plan, uh, and of course, number ten is likely to deny it. But but still, this is an extraordinary development. Well, yeah, Downing Street says it, it's it's complete fiction. But I mean, you know, they they would say that, wouldn't they? We know that it's been discussed by some people in in government. And again, you just come back to that. I remember three more than three years ago now, people saying, "Ah, this is all about restoring the powers of Parliament, the sovereignty of the British Parliament. It shouldn't be playing second fiddle to Brussels or Strasbourg." And those who advocated that course of action are now seemingly seriously considering closing down Parliament so that it can't ask any difficult questions. And imagine if a developing country, an emerging democracy, did something similar: elected a prime minister or had appointed a new 
prime minister who was not elected by the electorate, by the voters, but by a, a tiny group of people. And that prime minister then proceeded to, to um, suspend parliament. We would be outraged. We would cancel development aid, suspend development aid. But this is the UK. Apparently, uh, thing, things are different here. Um, Israel uh, is bombing Iranian-backed forces in Syria. Why, why is that happening? This is another extraordinary development over the weekend. So um, the Israeli Air Force last night bombed uh, targets in Syria, claiming uh, that um, uh, those... Um, those were units backed by Iran, in fact, were Iranian Al-Quds units that were planning, according to Israel, to launch um, a drone attack on Israel. And this is quite something. So it was a preventive strike. And it's not clear whether um, what Israel claimed is, is true. But if if that's the case, uh, this is really a very interesting development in warfare where you launch a preventive uh, strike or you can uh, carry out a, a, preventing, a preventive strike against against an adversary um, because that an, uh, adversary is planning to conduct or carry out a drone attack. And this is something we haven't seen before. So um, drone attacks are, are a new element in warfare. Now, is it legitimate to, to launch a preventive strike against drone attacks? I think that the ethicists in the world are... Um, uh, um, are inconclusive on that and there are so many you say ethical issues aren't there around around the issues of drones that i know that there have been arguments in the past is that does a drone operator three thousand miles away from a conflict zone should they get a, a service medal or the sort of the lighter issues around it because have they served if they weren't in the war zone but then similarly others have said is a drone operator three thousand miles away from the war zone a legitimate target for the country that's being targeted if if you are being targeted by a drone which is being operated by someone on the other side of the world, is it legitimate under the sort of rules of war for you to target that drone operator? That's right. So it's a drone operator living in, in Colorado. Is he safe from attacks by enemy forces? Could it be that enemy forces are um, legitimately allowed to seek him out wherever he lives on his military base or 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 in fact in a civilian home and um, attack him and these are really new frontier the frontiers of, of today's new warfare another interesting development um, from germany relating to to drone attacks is that germans are concerned about the role of uh, the Rammstein base in Germany, through which the signals that uh, the drone operators in the US uh, relay their their um, moves. Um, so Rammstein is essentially the conduit for for those signals. Now, does it mean that Germany is complicit in killings uh, drone killings by drones in other countries? And, and a number of Germans are very uncomfortable with the role that Germany might be playing. Uh, so, who had thought of that before? Rammstein. Nobody is is conducting any drone attacks from Rammstein, but the signals go through Rammstein. Um, uh, now, the first ever crime in space may have been committed. That's right. You think of, of the International Space Station as being the uh, possibly the most august and, and uh, genteel setting ever, but it has been discovered that one of the 
most recent astronaut uh, who has just returned from the ISS, uh, in in fact, um, hacked somebody's bank account while up in space. I think space. it's an ex-partner, isn't it? Sort of <laughs> That's the... right. So this, this astronaut, uh, Anne McLean, uh, while up at the ISS, accessed her partner's bank account um, uh, uh, without permission from a, um, a computer at the ISS. For some reason, it, my first thought of this was, they have internet access on the ISS? I mean, obviously they do, but it just seems... I can't get past broadband where I live in London, uh, and you can you can access people's bank accounts on the ISS. But who has jurisdiction over space? Well, that's something we have to figure out. Well, like like you, I think most people are, are, are surprised that, that you can just sort of um, surf the internet at your leisure at the ISS. I think we all assumed that that their internet traffic was for very important business, but, but clearly you can conduct uh, very personal business there. And her partner, um, uh, the, the astronaut's partner, discovered this because she noticed that somebody had... Uh, been, she suspected that somebody had been accessing her bank account and she checked with the bank where the login uh, logins came from. And the bank uh, supplied those logins. Expecting to, it to be Malaysia <laughs> or right, something. Right. They said, actually, it was space. Yes, right, and how, okay. many, how many people are in space? Well, <laughs> it limits down the that number. That really of, does uh, cut down the number of suspects. Space right. crime, heavens above. Um, Elizabeth Braw, thank you very much for coming in uh, this morning. That is it for today's programme. Monocle's House U returns Monday at 1800. London time here on Monocle 24. Our supervising producer today, Ben Ryland, our researcher, Charlie Phil McCourt, and our studio manager is Max Bauer. I'm Paul Osborne. Thanks for listening and enjoy your weekend.